because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a show in which we discuss philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. And today we're talking about a lovely gem of a film, actually one quite dear to my heart, What Maisie Knew. lucky to be joined today by the film's producer, Daniela Taplin-Lundberg. Daniela has produced many films, including The Kids Are Alright, Hello, My Name is Doris, Under the Silver Lake, and Honey Boy, among many others. She's also the founder of Stay Gold Features and the host of Hollywood Gold, a podcast in which she interviews Hollywood producers about the stories behind the stories we love. Welcome to Cows in the Field, Daniela. Thanks, guys. Hi, Justin. Hi, Laura. It's so nice to be here. I'm like, I'm deeply impressed that you chose what Maisie knew to discuss. It's one of my favorite movies, but it's rarely discussed because it wasn't it wasn't so successful. But. It is rarely discussed. I think it is one of these films which had which kind of I don't know when we first saw it, but it, I think it, 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 I think right when it came out. Really, okay. we didn't see it in theaters, but I think it was twenty twenty thirteen. I know which house we saw it in. It was twenty thirteen. I'm going to be gushing about this movie. To some extent, we'll see. Because yeah. I really do love it. And But before we get into the movie, I want to ask a, just a question because I know a little bit about filmmaking. I'm not a filmmaker by any means. But I know like what an editor does and I know what a, a writer does. I kind of know what a director does. But what does a producer do? So... Love this question. Yeah, so <laughs> this is the kind of thing where, where I think our audience may be in a similar boat as me. So tell us, like, in yeah. your eyes, you know, what is the role of the producer in making films? I, I like, compare it to, like, a traditional business because I think it's, like, the easiest way for a layman to understand. Like, I consider a producer of a movie to be a founder and CEO of a startup company. And so so you are essentially the person who you know, is either pitched or comes up with the idea yourself, whether it's like from a book or an article, you find the writer or the writer is pitching something to you. And then you basically put it on your back and are the one who's going to like build the ship mm -hmm. to launch it into the, into the world. So that means you're responsible for developing the script, finding the money to develop the script, finding the filmmaker, um, finding the funding to, make the film, to hire the actors, hiring all the key crew members. Then you're in charge of overseeing the entire production, making sure it stays on budget, making sure that the director's vision is being um, sort of honored while maintaining sort of the budgetary constraints that you've agreed to with your, your backers, whether that's a studio or independent financiers. Um, and then you're sort of guiding the whole process. You're overseeing production, you're overseeing the edit, then you're the one who's sort of 
creating the vision of how it's going to get out into the world. Mm -hmm. How are we going to sell this? Are we going to take it to a festival or does it already have distribution? If it already has distribution, you're helping form those like those materials, the, the one sheet, the, you know, the poster and the, and the trailer and um, helping plan how, when it's released, how it's released. Is it released in 10 screens? Is it released in a thousand screens? And a lot of times that's not your decision. It's uh -huh. the people, it's the studio, but you really are trying to help guide it because you had the vision to begin with I of see. what it could be. So you're kind of, it, when you're working with a the studio, then you you are almost an intermediary between the the the, the people who are, on set, like, you know, putting film in the cameras and the people who are, um, who are financing and, and making these yeah. other sorts of, you're like the neck, you're like the center of the, of the, of, of the wheel. Got it. So you, you got to like hold it all together as it's like spinning and spinning and spinning. I see. And you have to make sure it's continuing to like stay on the road. And so, you know, I think my husband works in private equity and he invests in a lot of companies, but like, we we have a lot to talk about because it's like a it's a very similar thing when a yeah. company is growing and you're raising money but you've got to make sure that the product is still good and the marketing is working and it's growing in a in a like in a realistic way and not growing too fast and you know it, it's very similar principles to making a movie the other thing that i so i've been listening to your podcast hollywood gold which i which i love and and our listeners i think would get a real kick out of the the many of the episodes um but one of the things that comes up i think on that show a number of times is the producer almost has to serve like they're like have to be almost a jack of all trades and one of the roles that they have to play often is told as as what you're playing is like a role of like counselor to the various people so you are often or I, I hear this that the producer is somebody who's being complained to by some so like there's <laughs> like the actor is mad about something so then they come to the producer and the producer has yeah. to be has to sort of you know make sure the actor is not upset at the director and the writer and and there's like that middle they're like almost a mediator in some ways. A hundred percent. I mean I think that the, it's it's why people get cons so confused as to what a producer is like I'm always like the producer is the person who wins the Academy Award Best right. Picture like, mm -hmm. because they're like responsible for all the things. It's not just like one box, but you're absolutely right, Justin, in that it's like your mother, your father, you're like, you know, your financier, <laughs> you're, you know, like right. you're like, you know, handling union deals. You're like you have to mm -hmm. be all these different things. And and a, like a true, you know, creative producer is all those things. And and then there's like but then there's like. 30 people who get a producer credit on, on a film. And oftentimes you're giving out producer credits to lure money or, you know, there's all different reasons why people get producer credits or executive producer credits uh -huh. or co-producer credits. And so there's many sort of many people fund on fall under the producer umbrella but like what i do is all those things <laughs> got it yes i see and so, i'm the i'm the lead person who's like pushing it forward and yes. making sure all those other producers are doing what they promised they were going to do um but it, it's such a confusing moniker and i wish there were like more distinct <laughs> to define what we all do but yeah. there's i mean there's this is this was partly i think yeah why when i so when i looked at the at the production credits for Maisie and I and I thought like, holy crap there are 29 producers I, I counted them and I and I thought that seems so what I'm getting from you though is that the, within that category the people there are doing wildly different work so yes some people are doing this thing you're saying and then some people are 
like like maybe maybe we could talk a little bit about the distinction between producer and executive producer yeah typically in independent film um or studio films executive producer can be like a, a pretty important piece whether an executive producer is someone who's bringing like a significant amount of money to the table which is like obviously the thing that makes makes the machine go or is responsible for a certain element like originally optioned the book or the mm. article and like helped get it to a certain place but wasn't necessarily the person to push it forward into production and like hire all the cast and get the director on and oversee production they often get an executive an executive producer um credit and so like there's an executive producer can be really really significant um but you know more often than not it in independent film in particular it has to do with you know helping put the financing together sure. and, and getting significant cash into the bank so got that it. the movie can be made. Yep. Got it. And then, yeah. it, okay. So when, so when, when you're, when I see 29 producers, there's, there's some sort of hierarchy, right? Like someone is sort yeah. of in charge and, and you, you're saying in, in, in the, that's the role you're playing. Yeah. And I, you know, we talk a lot about this. I'm on the, um, I'm on the board of the producers, you know, whatever at the Academy of the Academy boards. Um, and I'm on that board of producers branch. And we're always talking about like, a, we wish there could be like a super producer moniker. Mm, like the, right. we're, this is the, this is the person or these are the two people or three people who actually were like truly making it go, but that doesn't exist. So, you know, in the PGA, which is the producers guild, the, we've attempted to put this sort of, you know, stamp on the producers who really make it go. And essentially it's the PGA mark. I don't know. If I you guys see. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That. Yep. Films yep. you'll go into movies yeah. and you'll see three of the seven producers have PGA marks. And that's typically, you know, the producers guild will, you know, put together a committee and then producers vote and like, decide whether this producer actually deserves the mark, meaning the person who actually made the film happen as opposed to financiers or managers or other reason, you know, other producers. Um, and that mark sort of indicates the producers who really, really, you know, did the work to make it happen. Yeah. Got it. That's really, that's very helpful. I didn't know that. And that's, I, that I'm, I imagined a number of our listeners <laughs> did not know that. I did not know that. That um, just decoded so much for me. No, to totally. Okay. <laughs> Good. Well, let's shift gears to Maisie. So how did Maisie come about in particular? So it's so funny. I was I was just like watching, re-watching Maisie um, yesterday. And I'm so glad you guys made me do that because I'm like, this movie is so good. Yeah, um, it is. But I, I studied what Maisie knew in my 19th century liter literature course in college and had actually written a, an, um, a paper on it. And when I had a company... Um, many, many years ago called Plum Pictures, I had an intern there who had, was also an intern at Focus Features. And he had read a script that he loved. What Maisie knew was the script that like had just gone through and had been around for maybe 10 or 15 years. And no one was ever going to make it. Obviously, like when your lead is a six-year-old girl, it's like <laughs> these are it's like literary material. Like these are just the movies that are difficult to make. Um, but I read it and I was so impressed by the modern adaptation of Henry James novella. And I was just like, these writers are kind of genius, you know, like it was obviously dealing with like very modern themes of divorce and backbiting and all those things. But I was just like, what a brilliant 
um, update of like making, you know, um, the mother, you know, a sort of, you know, self-obsessed narcissistic rock star and, um, and, and the, the stepfather character, a bartender who marries her and the Beale character, a, you know, an art gallery owner. And I was just like, this, this is just feels very modern. Um, and so I was immediately sort of smitten. Um, and, and that was just sort of how we went about making movies at that time. I was like, all right, I'm going to go put this money together. And at that time, I was getting pretty good. My partners and I were getting pretty good at just like raising independent financing, which was just like raising 250 here or a million here or, you know, from people who were interested in film and wanting to make sort of things that felt like they would have impact. Um, and so that's how I went about it. And that's why there's 30 producers. On Got it. it. Yep. Because a lot of those people, you know, really liked the script you know, Julianne Moore was attached. We didn't get Alex Sarsgaard attached until like, you know, four weeks out from shooting. Wow. And by the way, he wasn't Alex Sarsgaard yet. You know, right, he right, was sort of right. earlier in his career. Yeah. Um, but Julianne Moore was really the hook. Um, and it was a it, it it wasn't sort of an obvious smash hit, right? It was like one of those films that I was just like, no, this is gonna be really impactful and it's gonna be really, really good and significant. But I just sort of believed in it. And, you know, I would say that was 2012, 2011, when we were trying to get that movie made. I would say, like, my lens has changed significantly since then about, like, what makes movies work. Um, but at the time, I just fell in love with it and it was something I'd studied in college. And so I just, like, went all in. I imagine, though, that having Julianne Moore, and and you, uh, you guys had worked together on The Kids Are All Right, which which was a very successful movie and, yes, and, yes. and had, you know, Academy, uh, you know, notoriety that, that and That had like a big breakout. That, that was like a real light bulb. That movie for me was like, oh my God, if you take risks on movie, because no one wanted to make The Kids Are All Right. If you take a big uh, swing on I something see. that feels, you know, significant and like it's trying to say something slightly new, but it's still just really commercial that's when you win in the independent game. Because at the time, like everyone had passed on the kids are all right. And our company was the only one who was like, we will finance this for $4.5 million. I mean, it was really a really tiny movie. And then it had huge breakout. And so it was, that was a big moment for me. But to be honest, I was a producer on the kids are all right, but you'll notice I, I'm not a PGA producer on the kids are all right. And I, I really, the movie came to us um, it already had sort of a lead producer in Jeffrey Livy Hinty and Plum Pictures, which was our company at the time, you know, the onus was on us to raise the money for it because no one could raise money for that movie. And so I didn't get to know Julianne very well on that. And so this Maisie was sort of a separate endeavor totally separate. for me. Interesting. Oh, that's really strategy. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I that's that's fascinating because because you yeah. just looking from the outside, you 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 might have thought that like, oh, there's this through line and and it's yeah, the two it of makes you. Perfect sense. And <laughs> but, that was, uh, you know, I knew her her talent team very well, but it wasn't like I called Julie up on the phone and was like, right. you gotta do this movie with us. <laughs> like, you know, that wasn't that yeah. wasn't the 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 game. But you know, I always try to be like really honest about the movies I you know, I really am the lead on that. I'm the person that either will make it go or not. And the ones that I won't, and the kids are all right. I'm so proud of that film, but you know, I, I certainly wasn't Jeffrey Livy Hinty. That guy was the one who like really made it go. I was significant in that. I, you know, I, I slaved to raise financing for it, but 
you know, I wasn't on set like helping Lisa Chilodenko set up a shot. I'm just thinking about how this is. I my my previous career was fundraising, so I my ears are perking up. I'm like, oh, oh wait a second, this yeah, is like well, what I did. Do too. I have a job for you? <laughs> <laughs> Two fifty here. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so, and then how how did the other cast come on board? So who was next after Julianne Moore was connected? So we so we had I hired Av Kaufman, who's like one of the most significant, incredible. Um, casting directors in New York. She she casts all of Ang Lee's movies. She did Lincoln for Spielberg. And she's got like just tremendous, tremendous taste. And I've worked with her subsequently probably five or six times. I just finished a movie with her. But uh, Bill Teitler, who was uh, one of the lead producers on Maisie as well, um, introduced me to her. We hired her. And she's just got um, incredible taste. And we just started like sort of you know, doing casting sessions, coming up with lists. Um, you know, I knew Alex Skarsgård's agent, Tracy Brennan. He was wanting to do sort of more interesting, dramatic things. Um, and and his um, manager, Larry Taub. Um, Steve Coogan was just like someone we thought was so cool and would be really great. Um, Joanna Vanderham, she was someone we like, we literally saw off of a television show. David and Scott just thought she was kind of dazzling and fresh and new. Um, and Onada, the lead actress, the little girl, David Siegel and Scott had found her on YouTube. She like, she posted all these like little YouTube videos, uh, of herself, like dancing and singing and all this stuff. I mean, she couldn't even read. She was like, you know, she was just six years old. And so they would have to memorize, she would have to memorize her lines. Like her mother would have to like help her memorize because she, she really couldn't read (laughs) or she was just learning to read. Um, But she, like when we first found her, she had like hair down her, her butt. And she was just kind of this like little bohemian girl that they had found. And we, you know, we auditioned tons and tons of more professional actresses. And sometimes that's just like the magic of casting. It's like, well, no, no one's as good as this little girl. And like, I remember like Alex Skarsgård could like hold her in his hand and like lift her with just like her little feet on his hand. And like, they did this thing, they became very close um, in person. And he would just like hold her like a little monkey on her, on his, like the side. And so that, that relationship felt actually very, very organic because she loved him and he would always like play with her. Um, and she was just like this tiny little sprite, but you know, she was just honestly found on the internet. That's incredible. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? She's so natural. She's so good. And she's so, so good. I mean, those eyes. Yes. And she just, I mean, did that, you know, people talk about people the camera loving certain people the camera loves uh, i think everyone in this film but especially her scars guard and and joanna vanderham like those sequences yeah. where they i there's a couple uh, montage sequences where they're kind of hanging out and and i i'd actually be curious how those were shot because they feel so improvisatory because yeah they almost just feel like you know is run and gun like let's just go to central park and you know, have a very limited setup and just kind of let them play. Are you Was thinking that... about when he's like hiding behind the the like the pole the, on the, the pole. street yeah. and yeah. looking yeah. her on the bridge? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's so funny, you guys, because like in rewatching it, because uh, to be honest, it was you know it was a little bit of a um, complicated. You know, sometimes when you have these movies where there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, there were two writers. 
Bill Teitler, one of the lead producers, was married to one of the writers in Nancy Doyne. The other producer was Chuck Weinstock, who was very, very good friends with the other writer, Carol Cartwright. Um, and then David and Scott are two directors. And then like we had a company, Red Crown, and we were three other producers. And so it, it's just like, it's one of those things where there's like so many people with like, with opinions <laughs> who who have every right to have an opinion, right? Um, but it can get very, very um, complicated. And I would say that what I didn't acknowledge at the time was like, how incredibly talented and just instinctual David and Scott were as filmmakers. Like you look at that footage and it does feel all so naturalistic and just like very, very real and it, and like not improvisational, but there is this, this feeling like your very taste thing where you're just like capturing things that are happening. Right. And, and I think like at the time I was so stressed about like making the days and getting the financing done. And, you know, it wasn't an easy movie to get financed and we had like a debt component to it. And there was a lot of like opinions on set. And so sometimes with those movies, because there's so many cooks, you, you forget to like sort of embrace or like enjoy the beauty that's happening. And so in rewatching it, I've just, I was just like, oh, this is a love, beautiful film. It's a really, it's a probably underrated, you know, film because of all that. But um, you're right. That stuff all felt so, and it was, it really was natural. Like I think Onada was such a, like a delightful, like wonderful little six-year-old who just loved, was so excited to be there. It was her first movie. Like, and I think she really, um, allowed a lot like Skarsgård and Joanna to like loosen up and be relaxed because she was that's what kids do you know what I mean they like they create the dynamic they're not aware of all the politics going on which is also what the movie's about <laughs> yeah yes I know you Susanna, you don't know anyone you don't know anyone except yourself Shh. You breathe pain where you go. That's your real shut time. Shut up, shut up. Hey, do you know that's why the judge and the experts, they saw that. No, they saw you. No. Then why are they not giving you sole custody? Because you got a female no, judge. That's why. If that's what you want to tell yourself, then fine. If you want to tell your deluded don't self. Don't take her, man. Please, I'm not taking on, man, her. Take I'm her. not taking her. They gave her to me. Hey. Hey, baby. Just the person we want to see. Right. I mean, the scenes of her just sort of running through these rock star parties and, you know, yeah. where there's all kinds yeah. of adult stuff happening and she's just got her butterfly wings on. I was thinking like, that's got to be like what it feels like for her running through set, you know? Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like art imitating life in the reverse. I would say that you're, and you know, a couple of times we would get burned with that stuff because she was so excited and excitable that you sort of forget like she is just a six-year-old. And again, like I remember one day when we were out she had to do a night shoot. It's that, it's that scene where, um, where Julianne Moore's character pulls up and they're at the beach and, and like, that's a very difficult like shot to get, right. It's like, she's finally pulling up. They've created this little family unit and we had let her run around on the beach all day. Cause she had to do a couple scenes like, you know, out like him playing with her on the beach and all this stuff. And by 10 p.m. she was cashed like we literally yeah. had to come back and do it again because she she's a six-year-old and she gets tired and like you know it was a lesson to me as a producer it's like you can't you can't let a, a six-year-old perform and just 
be out in the world like you would in a full adult. Like they need their rest. They need, they need their time. And like, I was, you know, pretty young in my career, but like, I'll never forget that. It's like when you're dealing with kids, they're going to push things as much as they can. And it's your job as a producer to like, have them rest, go sit inside. I don't care if you want to go play in the ocean. Like we've got to reserve your energy. Surprise! <gasps> oh, my little beach bunny. Mm. Hey, guess what? I'm playing Virginia Beach tomorrow night. I found this really nice girl with a dog who can watch you during the show. And then after that, we go to North Carolina and Tennessee. What kind of dog? I don't know, but um, it's kind of a long drive, so if you want to say goodbye to these guys, you better hurry up. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Or you can just come back to the bus, and we can take off, and you can open all the presents I got you. You want to do that? I want to meet the dog, but maybe the day after. Well, baby, the day after I'm playing Raleigh, so I gotta go. Okay, come on, come on, let's go, baby, come on. What's up? What's the matter? Come on. We're supposed to go on a boat tomorrow. <laughs> Baby, we can go on a boat any day, okay? It's not a big deal. We gotta go. Come on, let's go. Come on. Come on. Maisie, come on. Don't you want to come? One of the things that I think is so incredible in her performance is that she has to anchor the film because the film is told yeah. through her perspective and everything is inflected by what she, you know, basically what she knows, but not quite what she knows at the time. So I'm curious, actually, what you think of this. So there's a lot of movies that, um, you know, play with the idea of memory. And um, and this movie really feels like one of those, even though there's no explicit shot of her later on in life reflecting back. it The whole thing just feels like that's what's going on. She's She has the the knowledge of a um you know of a of a 30 year old reflecting but of course she 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 can only she only gets like snippets of these conversations cuz she wasn't paying attention at the time and i think the, the the perspectives are always like i mean she's in most of the shots which is that must have been just incredibly challenging but also i think one of the other ways that you guys evoke that kind of feeling of memory the haziness of memory is using the long lenses and using a lot of diffusion filters, I think. Um, I mean, it's something about film and, and, you know, to, to the, you know, man, I kind of love the seeing movies shot on film, but it, it, there's the, the light fall off on, on characters is just different with digital. It's, it's very harsh and you can, you can soften it up, but, um, but it's, it's, everything is very soft and, and that is evocative of that, kind of of like when you're thinking back and you, you you have a snippet of something in your memory and but you can't remember all the details and so anyway did you think of this film as a kind of as a memory piece you know i, I it's so interesting cuz i'm i'm fascinated by that as well and i'm i'm deeply fascinated by lens and perspective and and narrator right and and i and again that was that's such a hallmark of of this novel and i i remember studying a lot of or reading a lot of books like Virgin Suicides. I was just talking to my daughter about like Eugenie Disease does that a lot of it's like it's all told through the lens of whatever. And um and this really was told through Maisie's 
eyes, which I loved. I thought that was so interesting, but I, I would say like all that diffusion, that long lens thing, that was really, I really have to credit David and Scott for developing that because I think it really did become more of a memory piece in, in the, the style they chose to shoot it. And they certainly talked to us a lot about that, but like watching it now, I'm like, God, that was so brilliant. And it was, those were very, very specific decisions and they really did fight to shoot on film. And by the way, in, in 2012, it was, it wasn't like you automatically shoot on d digital, you know, like that, that, that was still a discussion because there was like, there still was a debate about like what was cheaper, you know? <laughs> um, but we, you know, I think we shot on Fuji, you know, I think we did things to like, you know, that lowered the cost and they really, really felt passionately about it. But, you know, I, I just did a pod on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is also a movie all about memory. Also, you know, the memory of a child, you know, I think that's a very, very unique thing that I, for whatever reason, someone said this to me once, they're like, Daniela, you only love to make movies about kids and their like perspective on things. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then they were like, Maisie, you know, Beasts of No Nation, like, I just did any boy, boy yeah. you know, like all your movies are told like through kids. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, why am I obsessed with this? But you're absolutely right. That like, it is something that I'm really drawn to. To be honest, like I'm a child of divorce. Like, I, I think I was always, I'm also drawn to those themes of like, what is trauma? What is memory? What, you know, um, and how do you, how do you sort of deal with those things as you mature? is you know not you know the book obviously deals with like a a, a, an, a you know a growing Maisie and the and the the movie chooses to you know chooses to stay in her six-year-old sort of mind's eye um but all that stuff is sort of fascinating to yeah, me I mean one of the things that the movie I think captures exactly right is that memories are inflected they're valenced so they have emotional contours to them you don't just like a memory is not the same as a recording Right, recordings are these things which have a certain degree of objectivity. Of course, they're not fully objective because we choose what to point the camera at. But memories are things that we have associative feelings with, and and nowhere clearer is this when like you you get a smell of something that does that sense memory thing that immediately cues the feeling that you had maybe the first time or the associations you have with that smell. And this movie just has that. In it just it just gets that exactly right. And a lot of, you know, one thing that I think is kind of unfair about the fact that the movie has not been received as much yeah. like attention is that it's in a tradition. I mean, I think this is one of the things filmmaking is really good at cuz I mean, the 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 like the 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 next best thing you could do is um is do it with like music or because then you have the auditory or smell like smell o vision right but it gets yeah, it without yeah, that totally. really because there's yeah. you're not relying on nostalgic music right to pu to push it's it's yeah and and you because you you know the the rock music is the stuff you guys wrote for the that's like julianne moore's character's music and then but the other thing is that um you know movies that do this uh like are you know some of the ones that do this are are some of the most highly regarded movies and i think this is part in part because film just there's something about that way of capturing the visual ex experience of the feeling of memory that's really potent so i was thinking a lot when i was thinking about this virgin suicides is a perfect example of another movie that just nails that kind of thing but yeah, other ones yeah. are like you know tarkovsky like mirror is is totally in this vein 
but also mm-hmm. a lot of the Malik stuff, like um, yep, uh, 100%. the Tree of Life. And I was also thinking of like more recently, um, After Sun. After the, Sun. The movie I After, After Sun, Sun a lot. Totally. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And I think it's interesting that they all deal with children or adolescents. Yeah. Like it, it's all it's all about that moment in time. Um, and so they, they're totally, it all those all feel tied to me. But, you know, I think two two things to that, Justin, like I think we did work a lot with sound design and you're right, we don't use nostalgic music, but they worked like on all those arguments that are sort of happening back here. Mm-hmm. They're kind of, they were very intentionally meant to be not in the forefront, right? And And as a kid, I do remember that kind of thing where you're like, you're coloring or you're doing something else and you hear something going on in the background and it's not even really you're processing it, but you will someday, right? experience of, of maturing and looking and reprocessing those memories, which we're constantly doing, there's twofold to it. I mean, there's, there's the part where you're kind of literally just putting together what the words were, you know, it's like your yeah. brain is able yeah. to log them, but your six-year-old self is not understanding what the argument is. And sometimes later you look back and say, Oh, my, my mom and dad were having money issues when I was a kid, or my mom and dad were, were not getting along and I'm just now putting it together. But the other thing is like, as you get older and as you become the age of your parents, you're bringing also like an emotional maturity and, and a life experience to re- to also reframe those experiences and an empathy to for what your parents as adults were going through and this movie is able to do all of that at once <laughs> even as like Julianne Moore and Steve Coogan's characters are irresponsible and not good parents I am still like understanding what they're going through I don't I don't dislike them. I'm frustrated by their choices, but I have empathy for what they're going through as well and and why they're sort of following their instincts in 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 ways that I don't approve of. <laughs> it's so interesting because I I'm curious like what you're cuz to me I was rewatching it and I'm, you know, obviously in the novella like the the parents are are deeply narcissistic and and using Maisie as like a sort of pawn and and I felt that way in the film as well, but did you have an empathy for, for the parents? Like, did you feel like there were redeeming qualities to that? I mean, that's just Julianne Moore. She's like, (laughs) such a nuanced, you know, performer that like, you're never fully gonna. I think there's more space to feel that with Julianne Moore's character than Kuga, just because she gets more screen time. But I think the thing that I was thinking about is, you know, I'm trying to be a good parent and I, and I follow psychologists on Instagram who tell me how to be a good parent. And, you know, and a lot, they talk a lot about like keeping your kid safe from feeling like they're responsible for your emotions, which is what Julianne Moore is repeatedly not doing. Right. She's being way too open with her kid at times. She's being way, she's not tamper, tempering any of her emotions. But I do understand that like, there are times when sometimes I don't filter myself the way I ought to with my kid. I'm tired. I'm emotional. I'm a human too. And it's, there's almost like an expectation that once you become a parent, like you're not supposed to be a person with feelings that are possible, that could feel unsafe or hard to your kid. That's tough. You know, she's, I, you know, she, I, 
she's not following exactly on the line I'd hope for her to be, but I totally empathize with that. And I think the things that she's expressing when she's met, when she feels a pang of jealousy because her daughter seems to prefer her new husband over her. I know what that feeling is. You know, when my kid's in a daddy moment, I totally know that feeling. It's just that I don't make a hissy fit about it. But, <laughs> but I, yeah, I certainly don't think she's a monster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, she like wants to be loved. And like that scene where she has the, the where they have this the sort of disastrous sleepover and they're making the amazing dessert, you know, with all yeah. the whipped cream and stuff. Like I also have that feeling where you're like, I want to be the loved mom. I want to be the fun mom. I want to have like, I want to get say yes to things and like enjoy the moment because I, it's exhausting to be responsible and worry about consequences and always say no. Sometimes you just want to be like, screw it. <laughs> You know, it's so funny that we were we were short for time and we were going to cut that scene because it felt mm. unnecessary to continue to further story. Right. It was it was sort of important to her character, but not to the actual plot of the film. And she really was like, we have to have that scene. We have to have a moment where she's doing her best in the in the only way she knows how to create joy for her daughter because she's so ill-equipped <laughs> and you're right. It's like, it's such a significant symbolic scene in that moment because I do, I too recognize like when I'm throwing a birthday party, I remember I was talking to my kid about this the other day and I, I tend to go overboard and like put all the candy out. And like, I literally had a birthday party to a year ago where I let the boys eat whatever they want. And one of the boys threw up and the parent had to come pick them up. And I'm like a pretty good parent. Like I live in Westport, you know, like I'm, I'm like on it. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I just became Julianne Moore in this moment where I was just like, <laughs> eat all the Skittles, right. eat all of them. And now throw up. And now the dad has to come pick up one of the kids at like 10 PM. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I think also that the, you know, the, the characters, I mean, the film threads that needle between the uh the characters of um Beale and Susanna are are written as very you know on the surface as as you know quite objectionable quite challenging quite difficult characters it would be quite triggering for people who have narcissistic parents yep. but i think the performances are are you know, are very winning. I mean, in part because uh, these characters are, or these actors are incredibly charismatic. But I think also there's a lot sort of in between the lines. So, you know, you see all the stuff you see with Coogan's character, 
uh, is like him on the phone trying to negotiate some deal or something. And, you know, and I, I get the sense that, and similarly with, with Julianne Moore's character, like, like, these are people who lived, who, who have lives, they've lived lives that, and now they're sort of, do we, you know, we, we wanted kids, I guess. And, and now we have them, uh, later in life. And we're all like, uh, you know, was this something we really, you know, they're reconsidering this, this kind of choice that they made. Um, and I think, so they're, they're kind of, all these characters are right at a choice point when we meet them. And what's kind of, I think challenging is that the the movie you don't know where it's going uh, with the first time you see it, the second time you see it, any subsequent time you know where it's going, and so it it doesn't hurt as much to when because you sort of know where they're going to end up, and I think that that makes the movie feel to me more um, uh, warm and and happy because I I sort of know that that initial whatever half of the movie or so where it's generally quite bad and challenging is is going to eventually give way to these moments of real joy. And um and and anyway, I I so I kind of think of it like these characters are, I don't know, I have empathy in the sense that, you know, I've made choices and then had, you know, had cause to sort of rethink them. And and in some weird way, I don't begrudge the fact that I mean, obviously society begrudges it, but like I don't begrudge the fact that like what has what the outcome of the film, I think, is the best possible outcome like for oh, for these totally. characters justin this is a slightly different point to what you're saying but when i was watching the film and i think it's because i've been so inundated with like netflix content right now not to like not to begrudge netflix like what <laughs> understand what, what they're doing yeah. but like there felt like these all these characters felt very authentic to me and i feel like that's an overused word but in in the sense that they were Susanna or Julianne Moore's character was a fully realized rock star who like got pregnant with this guy ended up having this kid she's doing the best she can but really she's she totally is an irresponsible human being who has no business parenting and and I was like that's really her that's like the, like the look the like the the nails the the her apartment all of it felt like so true and and the same with Coogan. I was like, yeah, this is just like a guy who's selling art who like met this rock star and like they ended up sort of falling in love and sort of getting stuck in this loveless situation. But I believe I completely believed it. And and it's funny, like these days with like everything being shot in New Mexico or wherever it's being shot, I I don't get that feeling anymore from from a lot of content that we're being shown. It's like, okay, well, how do you pretend to be a rock star? And I, you know, it's funny with Julianne. Julianne Moore was not a singer. And so a lot of that, like, a lot of that stuff, the video you see of her, and like we've got these these like proper rock stars to come in and like, you know, help her sing and like perform and all this stuff. I was just like, you really feel like this is this is a slice of life. Again, it's like a, a like a verite feeling thing where it's just like we're just capturing this, and it's and it's someone's memory, but it's someone's true memory. So it, it's a slightly different point to what you're saying. No, but it, I, I totally agree. Totally, yeah. I mean, sorry. Actually, I want to go back to the the Coogan thing. So the, my one of my favorite just shots in the movie, weirdly because it's not a happy one, is the uh, shot where. Coogan, Joanna, and Onada are are sitting around the, the table eating a silent meal. 
and yeah. they're framed by that piece of art, where, which is like an, a piece which looks like you're looking out at a, it looks like it's a window frame that you're looking out at the street. And I, it's, 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 it's so perfect because you know, it's that you, now, you know, immediately like that's this guy's, he's like an art dealer and this is his taste in art is this like yes. ridiculous yes. city scene. <laughs> and it's yes. so absurd. And I yes. just think everything yes. that Coogan does, he's like, I feel I'm a huge Steve Coogan fan. And I feel like everything he does is like just the master. He's the master of me, you know, finding some absurd thing and then just like, like, doing it, it completely straight like this is my guy this is what i'm gonna do and he's all these lines where he's on the phone and he's like okay yeah all right like he's he's negotiating some deal and he's just being dismissive or something and yes. i and those are yeah. just amazing how much you can, that's academic look no one in america has heard of him yeah i don't know why but fine okay let's see okay that's okay you can write in straight lines <sighs> You got it. Um, I may need to uh, take off to Italy in the next few weeks. Oh. So you think you could uh, keep an eye on Maisie? Okay, sure. It's so funny. Like, I don't know. Every movie I sort of take away like a weird performance from someone and I'll just like, I'll say it over and over again and I'll like quote that person and no one ever knows what I'm talking about because it's not like Wedding crash Crashers I'm co quoting. I'm <laughs> quoting like my own films. Yeah. <laughs> the moment where like they're in the taxi and and he meets Lincoln. He meets Skarsgård. Oh. <laughs> and get in the thing and he's like young and dumb or whatever he says. And yeah. he's like, hilarious and so i'm always quoting him being like hilarious and years and years, it's like why do you keep saying hilarious that way and it's just because it's like it's not hilarious at all it's so good tall and young it's funny he's so not her type hilarious Do you know why the uh, the writers decided to deviate from the novel in in making this actually have a kind of you know because because I think one of the big deviations is that they create this little family unit and um, yeah. and I I really like that I really yeah. like that because th then you could read the film not as a falling apart divorce story but as really a a construction of a family in a just in a really odd and unusual circumstance yeah. I think I have a sense, although I couldn't tell you specifically, but um, the writer, Carol Cartwright, I think the inspiration for make, modernizing Susanna or modernizing the, the mother into sort of a rock star was that he he had been married to a rock star. I can't remember her name, maybe Ronnie something or other. We could look this up. Anyway, they had a daughter. And so it was... Nancy and Carol's idea to modernize it. And they were sort of inspired by his former relationship with this rock star. And they had a daughter who like actually ended up being like quite, quite successful and like, you know, very, you know, well-regarded young woman. And so I think they, ch they, they took a little bit of inspiration from real life and decided to make it like not a, a you know, a, a horrible ending where she ends up living with her governess. Like, I just thought that maybe that felt a little bit too tragic. And, and um, also like the real life inspiration was quite different. And so I really didn't mind that deviation because like, it would have been so, 
so sad. Yeah, she would have ended up with the old yeah, lady. Completely, yeah. <laughs> the old whatever. Like, who smells barely, funny. <laughs> who we barely had in the movie at yeah. all. Like Mrs. Wick like, has like a cameo appearance. Um, that was just like too depressing. And she wasn't as attractive as Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah, well, yes. Two people are. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so, okay. So I want, just want to switch gears now and tell us about your production company, Stay Gold Features. And um, are you guys producing anything right now? Like, is there anything yeah. you can talk about? So we're a content, um, you know, production company. We're lead creative producers who have figured out how to raise money in order to get things made. Because I think very early in my career, I realized that if you cannot raise money, you are just spinning your wheels most of the time. Um, and so I quickly learned how um, to speak to investors, how to show them the exit on on independent films, how that worked, um, and show them the upside, let them know that it's a really risky business, but it can also be really, really impactful if you know what you're doing and how you can navigate the waters of, of Hollywood. Um, which at that point I really did. So I, I started Stay Gold maybe um, six or seven years ago. I raised a film fund that was dedicated to development and production of film, TV, and now Broadway and podcasts. Because that's where the world's going, guys. Yeah. You've got to like be nimble. Yeah. And so we've probably made 10 movies. Um, we're in development on six or seven shows. We have Hollywood Gold as a podcast. We're starting to invest in Broadway. Um, we invested in Top Dog Underdog, which just won the Tony um, last week. Um, and so, you know, I just feel like the problem with Hollywood is often like creative producers really don't understand the financing side of the business at all. They don't, they, they know how to like pitch material. They know how to like, you know, develop a script. They know how to like put together a package, but they really don't understand how the money works. And I, and I realized like in order to sustain in this business, you really, you really do have to understand that if, if you're going to like sort of work outside the box. And so I learned how to do that. And we started doing really, really well. A lot of our movies went to Sundance. They all pretty much sold for, you know, in excess of their budget. I've returned money to our investors. And that's the way you sustain investors. You can't just like sustain them by like saying, this movie will be really impactful and it'll it'll affect hearts and minds. You really can't lose people's money or at least, you know, you can't promise the world, but you can do your best not to like lose money. And so we're on, you know, we're sort of rounding the bend on fund two and starting to think about our third fund and um, just trying to be smart about what we're investing in and make sure like the market wants it. That was the thing that we sort of learned early on that you have to make movies and TV and things that people are going to want to see. Because if you're just in a va in the sort of like in a room saying like, this is a great script, but like there's not going to be an audience for it. That's like a surefire way not to make money back. <laughs> um, and so, you know, what I said about Maisie, I'm so proud of that movie it didn't have a huge audience. I would say the kids are all right was like the biggest light bulb where I was like, oh, okay, that movie had impact. It also had a large audience and it made the investors their money back and then some. And so if you can try to echo that in some way, then you're really winning. Does it, uh, can I ask it just, this, this might be controversial. I don't know, but I, I, I suspect that with, you know, the, we're in it, we're in this, fulcrum point again like we were with the film digital thing but a much more dramatic one with theatrical 
and streaming. And is, I mean, does that, how does that enter into the equation in terms of getting investors or talking to talent? Like, do people, are people like, is, I imagine this is just a constant conversation, but is this, how does this, how does this complicate the, uh, the, the process of producing films? It really, really does. And it, and it's constantly evolving. Listen, the, a year and a half ago, the theater business was dead. And then just yesterday, the Academy put out a set of rules that if you want to be nominated for Best Picture, you as a studio have to put your movie in theaters for longer than a week, which is like a, a brand new rule that has never existed before. You have to have a, a real theatrical plan if you want a film to be nominated for Academy Awards, which is really still a goal of all the streamers and the studios. You know, it's it's not Spider-Man, but it's like the other side of the spectrum where you want to be attracting the best actors and trying to make prestigious films with filmmakers who want to win awards, um, which is obviously not everyone's motivation, but it it is a component, right? And so I really do believe in this sort of pendulum of our business and it's like gone back and forth for like decades and decades. And I feel like, Today, there this summer is going to be a very, very, very healthy box office. Now, most of those things are going to be sequels to sequels to sequels. And I can sort of see that starting to, to die down, you know, like movies like The Flash and Black Adam haven't done as well as people have expected. And so now we're going to have to figure out something else that people are going to want to come and see. Um, and so I, I'm always like optimistic and hopeful because I think ultimately like this is just going through another phase where we there was like a such an influx of content when the streamers were competing with each other and now that's going to start to fall away again and it's going to start to like hone down a little bit but I still feel like there's really room for good good content you like the number one priority for me is just trying to make things that feel like they're pushing boundaries and that they're significant and that they're commercial. Like, I don't think commercial is a bad word. You know, I think you can make something that feels like it's impactful, but also audiences are going to want to see. And I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. And so I think we just have to like be smarter and figure out how independent money will still work in the marketplace. And, but these festivals are still going to, Sundance is not going away anytime soon. You know what I mean? And like, I suspect Sundance this year will probably be like pretty robust because there's been a strike for, you know, five or six months at that point, or, you know, maybe it'll end, but I suspect it'll go on a little bit longer. And so I don't know, it, it changes every, every month, this business, you kind of just have to like yeah. go with it, yeah. you know? Yeah. No, um, but it's not for the faint of heart. No, you know? I I would imagine. Yeah, <laughs> I would imagine. Yes, because these what worked yesterday won't work today and vice versa. Yeah. So you have to yeah. constantly be on your toes. And yeah. that's exactly right. And I like what you said about you're looking for things that push boundaries, because that suggests that like, you know, you're looking to make, I mean, the you know, art in general, you're, you're, you're not just trying to make something for today, although of course you are, but you're just trying to make something for tomorrow. And, and, and that's instanced by this movie. And I think one of the things that and we're talking about a movie, right, from 10 years ago, and, and I'm telling you how much I loved it and how much it, you know, has, you know, it's meant a lot to me. And, um, and I'm just one person and that's, but these are things that like, that is that impact. Um, I think that one of the things that is just so, um, 
I don't know, I guess it's just sort of challenging in in that regard is how do you thread that needle and how do you find the thing that is going to have that kind of staying power? And uh, I imagine that that's a lot of the people were you know who are behind the camera and in in front of the camera i guess to a certain extent uh they want to have that thing that lasts that can that goes on and and because that's the thing that will help i don't know i mean that's we're, we're, yeah we're anyway they want to no, be remembered no i mean you're making a really good point but i think part of the job of a producer is trying to like look up and see like what's coming as opposed to right. following what's or at least it, from my perspective, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of producers who are like, no, just keep making Fast and the Furious. It's like a, it that's like a, that's like a winner every time. And I think for someone like an independent producer like me, I can't, I can't think that way because I can't compete. So I have to, my whole model is like thinking outside the box and trying not to imitate, but trying to do stuff that feels different and fresh and like unique. And that will grab people because it is fresh but not so out of the box that people aren't going to understand it, you know? And so it really is trying to like get a little bit of ahead of the game um, and understand like where people are moving, you know, and where you can help them move uh, as an audience. So it's really fun in that way, you know? Of course. And I, and the last thing I want to ask you about is the podcast. And one of the things I think that's kind of interesting about what podcasts have done is that because podcasts, um, are a lot of them have been made by just independent people like ourselves. Uh, you know, we're not affiliated with uh, any pub- national publication or anything like that. So we don't have to cover the, the the films that are coming out, right? We can we can revisit films, go back and look at, and that contributes to their enduring status. The conversation goes on. Um, and so tell us about, I mean, why, why did you want to start Hollywood Gold? So I, you know, I was several years ago, I was listening to a lot to how I built this, that, that podcast about, you know, great companies and how they started. And I, I'm a part of this group called YPO Young Presidents Organization. And I'm in a group with like all these other founders and CEOs and, um, and, you know, everyone's always fascinated with movies, but like what I have found is that like the process of building a movie is just like the process of building a company. It's like, it's, it's the very, it's very similar (laughs) that like you're building something from nothing. And so I was just like, these great movies, they almost always didn't get made. There's always, there's always something that almost didn't happen. Apocalypse now, like Coppola had like several nervous breakdowns. Like Martin Sheen had a heart attack. Like there are so many reasons why that movie should not exist today, and yet it did. And so to me, a great film is like the heart of why we do all this. And I just was like, I want to remind everyone that like at the heart of this business is art and like great art, right? And it's like impacted us all. And it's it's the reason why I do this. And I grew up, you know, listening to my dad tell the story of how Mean Streets got made and how The Last Waltz got made. And I really am a film lover, like even at 11 years old, all I want to do was like watch movies and like figure out who the great filmmakers are. And, and so I just, in this era of streaming and so much content, I was just like, I kind of just want to remind us like what great movies are. Cause it's a separate experience than streaming, like binge watching, you know, whatever, a, a series on, on Netflix. And that's a wonderful experience too, but going into a theater, getting your popcorn and just like getting into a movie that changes you is a, is a very, very cool, unique thing that I don't think we should lose. And so 
I kind of just wanted to like hear those stories because I'm I'm a, as much of a film lover as like the as the next person. I just feel like these stories should be memorialized in some way because like a lot of these great producers are going away. You know, Fred Ruse, who produced every single one of Coppola's movie, that that like he's in his 80s. You know what I mean? And he's like still at it. He just finished Coppola's last movie. You know, um, but I kind of wanted to hear those stories. You know, before before it's too late i got you so. yes i totally yeah and the stories are great and uh our audience just as to say to the audience definitely check out daniela's podcast the the one on eternal sunshine that you mentioned i listened to that one and it was i mean it's one of these things where there's a there's a story in that episode which where the film like almost it just like if they don't do that thing if they don't do the right thing in that moment which is a very bold and brash thing to do uh, the film might not have been made because the actors at that point were like, this is chaotic. I And they might have pulled out. Totally. And that, that totally. sort of thing is wild. They totally lied. They totally lied <laughs> to Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet in that moment to keep the the, the thing on track. And yeah. I was like, well, that's just, that's producing, man. Like you just got to keep <laughs> the trains running on time. Yeah. And, um, and I just love like Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet brought Bregman and um, and the other producer into their trailer and being like, what is this? Have you seen anything <laughs> cut together? And the producers had not seen anything cut together. And it was total chaos. And the editor had quit from a nervous breakdown because the footage was so crazy. And they were like, yeah, we've seen it. And it's awesome. And that was <laughs> yeah, Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, like on board in like week four of the shoot. I oh was my just gosh. like, oh man, that's so good. It's so good. <laughs> and you know, actually just to, I don't want to I don't want to dwell too much on Eternal Sunshine, but I, 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 I signed it in my philosophy of film class and I talked about it with my students this semester and um, this last semester. And um, to your point in that episode about how the evolution of film watching has happened and, and since I guess it was 2004 or so to now, those students, no problem. It, it wasn't like, like they were watching something they couldn't understand. Like they all got it. It's almost immediately like they can the 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 way we watch the film and the understanding of it and the film conventions and how what they can pick up on it's just it's and it's changed in part because of films like that that right. totally. often that like swing. taught us how to do those kind of movies exactly. how to watch those kinds of movies exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> no our audience is like so much more sophisticated now to those cues yeah. and it's like no problem like yeah. I showed my fourteen year old and she's like yeah I totally get this yeah. and at the yeah. time it was just like. No, no one understood. It was risky. Know? It's so risky. Yeah. Like, yeah. and and you yeah. know, I also listened to your Memento episode. Big, I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan. Uh, you know, as a philosopher and everything. But I mean, it's the same thing of like you, you. you I think it takes a lot of guts as a producer to look at a script like that, or or you know, Eternal Sunshine, and be like, I think I trust this director can visually translate this incredibly complicated idea that's never been put to film before. Uh, and and in a way that audiences will be able to understand it, and and for both of those films to succeed as much as they did, I think is just obviously such a testament to the director, but also to the producers who were like, okay, I I can see this, and I can I can trust it, and I can get people on board. Totally, totally. <laughs> I love Jen Todd's line in in talking about Memento. She's like, when I first read it, it read like stereo instructions. Like no, Christopher Nolan's brain was just like working on a level that she could not even like penetrate. But she was like, no, he, he's got something and I'm going to trust in it. And that that's a lot of time just like great, great, you know, producing is like trusting, trusting your director, which is like not always easy, you know, and just helping him get what, what they need. Um, 
So anyways, thank you for listening to those two. Oh, they're, really- no, they're great. And audiences of Cows in the Field would love it. So go check that out. Um, Daniela, thank you so much for being here. Guys, this was so much fun. Thank you for being so conversational and wonderful and asking such good questions. I haven't talked about Maisie in forever, so it was great. Awesome. And in two weeks, we'll be talking to Bilga Abiri about the new Christopher Nolan film, Oppenheimer. So tune in for that. Bye. 